Today on Understanding Immigration, President Trump and immigration. The mainstream media often refer to these travel bans as Muslim bans, but at least a couple of these countries are on this travel ban do not have significant Muslim populations. You look at Venezuela and North Korea specifically. For our listeners, really the biggest thing to take away from this entire episode is that President Trump had to do all of this largely on his own. There, there was no, he had no help from Congress on in either party. Coming to you from Washington, D.C., you are now listening to FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcast. Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcast. This is Matthew Tregesser from FAIR's media team, and I'm joined as always by Preston Hedekins from our lobbying team. Today marks our 20th episode in this podcast series, and we will be discussing the impact the Trump administration has had on the nation's immigration system. Of course, we're still waiting for the 2020 presidential election results to be certified by the states, but it still remains critically important to reflect on what the Trump administration accomplished and failed with its immigration priorities between 2016 and 2020. But before we examine this topic, let's all briefly discuss some recent immigration news headlines from the week. Uh, The mainstream media is calling Joe Biden the next president of the United States, and if that holds to be true... What should the country expect with his administration's proposed immigration policies? So, you know, let me ask you, Preston, like, what are your initial thoughts on this? Is there something startling that you see off the bat that that we expect under a Biden-Harris administration? So I think and again, this this really all depends on what ends up happening with the Senate race in Georgia, because if assuming that the Democrats aren't able to win both of those Senate seats, then there's going to be a divided government, which means that the Republicans still hold the Senate. The Democrats will then have the House and the presidency. And so that really would limit what a President Biden and, uh, you know, Vice President Harris would be able to do. But mainly what that means is that they'd be able to reverse pretty much everything that President Trump did on immigration that he did through executive action. You know, there really wasn't and we'll, we'll obviously discuss this in this episode. There wasn't too much that the president accomplished through the legislative process because for so long, um, the Democrats controlled the House of Representatives and they obviously weren't going to support any of his legislative agenda in the House. So Joe Biden has promised to end the travel bans. Um, he's going to rescind all of the uh, agreements with the Central American countries and with Mexico that really prevented that huge wave of asylum seekers from from coming in um, back in the summer of 2019. And he's also promised to stop deportations for 100 days uh, Mm -hmm. until they in his, you know, in what he's saying, until they kind of figure out what their priorities are going to be. So there's a lot that that a President Biden would be able to do just with a pen and a phone. And he, he saw how President Obama, who he served under, was able to do that. And we saw how President Trump was able to do that as well. There's a lot that the president is able to do just from behind uh, the Resolute desk. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think that we're going to see a lot of quick and swift changes. I mean, as you said, a total rever- reversal of what the administration prioritized during these these years between 2016 and 2020. But I just want to give our listeners a couple numbers here that I think are important to know. The Biden-Harris administration... The, has wanted to increase refugee emissions from Trump from Trump's 15,000 to 125,000. So that's a massive increase. The amnesty that they're proposing uh, might put 14.3 million illegal aliens on a pathway to citizenship, 
which is something we have not seen in many years or pretty much ever. And FAIR has actually calculated uh, through a separate study, which you can find on our website, that this amnesty could actually, down the road, bring in 52 million more immigrants to the country. So again, a very large number there. And it's certainly different than what the Trump administration tried to prioritize during their four years in office. So great stuff as always. Now let's dive into the main portion of our segment, which is obviously the what the Trump administration, uh, what their impact was on immigration during the first term. So there are so many ways to analyze this and examine this topic. But let's start off with the executive action standpoint, Preston. What did the Trump administration pursue between 2016 and 2020? And what were the effects of these orders? Yeah, so like I said before, you know, most of the immigration success that President Trump had during his his four years in office was from the executive level because uh, he really wasn't able to push anything through Congress, even when Republicans had control of both the House and the Senate early, you know, in the first two years of his term. So um, right off the bat, one of the first things that President Trump did was sign some of those travel restrictions that, you know, some some people said these, you know, this was his infamous Muslim ban and all this crazy stuff. And to be fair, you know, he did say on the campaign trail that he wanted to have a Muslim ban. But the the actual executive order that he ended up passing uh, and that actually ended up surviving in the courts was anything but a, a Muslim ban. It really just restricted a handful of countries, you know, having their nationals come in. And even among those countries, it was very different. So for instance, there, you know, Venezuela was one of those countries, but the only mm-hmm. people that were really affected were, you know, people that were employed by the government. So that's really not a, a true ban on people from Venezuela coming in. It's only a certain, you know, category of people. Right. And Preston, if you recall, at least a couple of these countries were on this travel ban do not have significant Muslim populations. You look at Venezuela uh, and North Korea specifically, and you know the mainstream media often refer to this travel or these travel bans as Muslim bans. But as you can see by Venezuela and North Korea, that wasn't the case. Right, and that's I mean that's the biggest thing. And even it's just kind of silly because all of these countries, even under the Obama administration, and in many cases even under going back to Bill Clinton when he was president, have all been state sponsors of terrorism. You know, it's no real surprise that any that we would want to restrict the entry of nationals from these countries you know it would if if president trump really wanted to enact a muslim ban you know he would have gone after countries that have you know first of all a huge population and huge uh, you know numbers of muslims in their country like he would have gone after indonesia he would have gone after you know saudi arabia right countries that, that have huge numbers of of muslims in their countries and he didn't he went after countries that the intelligence community, that the defense community has known for decades to be either state sponsors or terrorism, or, you know, in the case of Yemen and Somalia, to not really have functioning governments that could control who is, who is entering and leaving their country. So, um, but, but, you know, so that was one of his first really immigration related acts was these travel restrictions. And these are still in effect. Um, at the, you know, as of the time of this episode, um, and th- again, these are uh, restrictions that Joe Biden has promised to overturn if if he's um, the president. But you know, I want to get to to probably what was the biggest executive action that President Trump took, which um, for our listeners out there, we'll have to kind of rewind, you know, a, a, about a year and a half to 
summer and spring 2019 when there was a, a absolutely enormous number of people coming to the southern border and requesting asylum. And this, this completely broke our immigration system, which, you know, had been built for decades on deterring single men from Mexico just coming to find work. It in no way was prepared to deal with hundreds of thousands of people coming from Central American countries who many of them had had families, extended families, children, and they were not avoiding border patrol, but in fact, seeking them out so that they could begin the asylum process in the U.S., knowing that they would probably be released into the U.S. until they had to go through the immigration um, court system. And so President Trump declared a national emergency at the border. And, and part of that was to build the border wall, but it also it shifted some resources, including um, personnel to the border to make sure that we had enough people to process the tens of thousands of people that were coming in every month, that we had enough asylum officers mm-hmm. to deal with people that were, that were making all of these asylum claims, uh, which frankly, you know, border patrol was just overwhelmed and they couldn't handle this. And, and we know this was a big deal because even the New York Times, which is, you know, hardly a supporter of the president's immigration agenda, even the New York Times said at that point that the border had reached a breaking point. And, and we clearly know that that was the case at the time. So, right. um, one of the biggest things that the president did to stop this was he, he finally signed a series of asylum agreements with first with Mexico, um, which it, you know, it has to be said, Mexico was not really a, a country, you know, there weren't, Mexicans were not predominantly the people coming over. Um, but they, the people from Central America were having to come through Mexico. And mm-hmm. so President Trump signed a deal with Mexico that allowed us to, when we detained people, they would, they would stay in Mexico until their court hearings in the U.S. So it prevented catch and release, which was widespread under the Obama administration and during you know parts of the early Trump administration, because there's nothing else you could do with these people. You couldn't necessarily just hold them indefinitely. That was one of the issues, you know, they got that, the you know, had the media turn on President Trump when he when he issued zero tolerance at the border. So, you know, this was this was a crucial policy uh, formally called the migrant protection protocols. But everyone knows it as remain in Mexico that really allowed the United States to, to hold people outside of the U.S. until they could could come through the immigration court system. Right. And I, and I want our listeners to really understand the impact of, of this order. I mean, almost immediately there were de- decreases in apprehensions at the southern border when this started to go into effect because it was starting to deter uh, meritless asylum seekers or, you know, asylum seekers who weren't really coming for asylum, but they were more so coming for better wages and economic opportunities. And, you know, if we remember in, uh, 2019, during the height of our border crisis in, in the month of May, there were 144,000 illegal aliens apprehended at the southern border, which was a number we haven't seen in a, uh, about a decade. And then just shortly after this EO went into effect, those numbers started to go down by the tens of thousands and just had an immediate and really successful and effective effect on, again, deterring meritless asylum seekers and also just gaining control of that southern border, which was absolutely not in control in 2019. Yeah. And again, it's uh, it's it's really unfortunate because during this entire process, 
you know, everyone knew that something was wrong at the border. Everyone knew that our asylum process was broken. Um, and certainly there were disagreements on how to fix it, but it really speaks to the gridlock in Congress at the time and, you know, how really desperate the Democrats were to not deal with this issue in the House because nothing changed from the legislative level. When all this was going on, the only reason that there weren't, you know, that, that we to this day don't have hundreds of thousands of, of people coming every year to the border is because of what President Trump did just using executive orders, using executive action and creating executive to executive agreements with the leaders of these other countries. You know, none of this went through Congress because Congress wasn't doing anything to address the issue. And for our listeners, that's really the biggest thing to take away from you know, really this entire episode is that President Trump had to do all of this largely on his own. There, there was no, he had no help from Congress on in either party. Uh, the Republicans, when they had full control of the House and the Senate, uh, those first two years in office, instead of, you know, going, you know, passing some sort of reform to asylum or some sort of immigration reform, you know, that, that groups like FAIR have been advocating for, they passed a tax cut and they attempted to overturn Obamacare, which was wildly unpopular and which led to many of them getting booted out of office in the midterm. So again, yeah, this, it's just unfortunate to see that everything that President Trump has accomplished, you know, in four years from the executive level is just going to be overturned within either 100 days or four years uh, if Joe Biden is president. Yeah. So I, I want to expand on that a little bit more, Preston. It seems like the, you know, most success with the immigration issue that the Trump administration achieved during the first term was, you know, through all these EOs, but nothing really passed through Congress. Um, you know, so do you envision, I guess, any real immigration reform happening with uh, a Biden-Harris administration and, you know, their flu- influence on Congress now? You know, we're looking for more permanent items, not items that are going to be reversed, you know, very quickly, depending on the administration. Yeah, it's it's difficult to say. And I, I kind of touched on this earlier and we, we can you know certainly talk about this more, but it really depends on what happens in the Senate. If you know the Republicans hold on to the Senate, then no, I don't think anything meaningful is going to happen. I think the issue has gotten very polarizing to the point where I don't. I don't see that there would be 10 Republicans willing to to cross the aisle and work on, you know, some sort of giant immigration legislation. Um, I, I just don't see that happening. I mean, I'm, surely there's a there's a handful that could and that probably would. But I, I really think that immigration has gotten to this point where it's everything is at the executive level. It's too toxic to deal with in in Congress, at least without a huge majority um, and so that's why I'm saying I don't think that Joe Biden would be able to push substantial legislation through a, a razor thin Democratic majority in the House and a Republican majority in the Senate. Now, that maybe changes a little bit if the Democrats do win both of those Senate races in Georgia and they do have a razor thin majority in the Senate and in the House, and they have Joe Biden in the White House. I think that certainly changes a lot because then, um, you know, first and foremost, he'd be able to probably confirm more, you know, kind of fringe, hardcore people into his administration in general. 
because you wouldn't have to negotiate with Mitch McConnell. But also, you know, you could hold together 51 Democrats and, you know, what is it, the, the 220 or 230 House Democrats to, to push through some sort of legislation with the blessing of the White House. And I think that Joe Biden would have a lot more success with that in that scenario in trying to pass legislation, um, you know, because he was he was in the Senate for 40 years. He, he knows how it works. He knows how, the, you know, he knows how to get bills through Congress um, and ultimately to the president, to the president's desk. So uh, I, I think that the chance certainly goes up um, if the Senate flips to the Democrats. But the way that it's looking now, I think it's just going to it's going to stay kind of on this executive level that we saw under Obama and that we saw under, under Trump. Right. So if we keep looking at, you know, legislation, especially under the Trump administration, you know, I think one of the most prominent pieces that we saw, not really developed by the Trump administration, but but by members of Congress was the RAISE Act, which we kind of touched on in our previous episode on uh, merit-based immigration. And this was, of course, legislation sponsored by Senators uh, Tom Cotton of Arkansas and David Perdue of Georgia. But what exactly happened with this? You know, this seemed like such a great uh, piece of legislation. And, you know, again, it, it sort of transformed our immigration system into a, a merit-based immigration system where you were awarded points based on uh, different skill sets. Um, but again, I, it, it seems to me like this kind of disappeared, even though, you know, the, the Senate was obviously uh, Republican dominated and this was a priority of the Trump administration. But I mean, was it just House Democrats that basically stymied all efforts of this? And, you know, can we see this ever being reintroduced in the near future under a potential Biden-Harris administration? Yeah, you know, uh, at least on the Senate side, it really wasn't the Democrats that killed it. It was actually, you know, the Republicans because Republicans didn't want to deal with the issue of immigration. And there were so there were so many people that had different ideas on what to do with immigration, right? This was a great bill from, from Senator Perdue and Senator Cotton. And it's certainly one that I know a lot of groups that want real immigration reform supported. But within the Republican caucus, there were people that looked at this and just said, well, this is a little too far for us. We really have no incentive to go down this road and change what we've done since 1965, 1952. So there really was just no appetite from the from the Republican Party, you know, in, in the Senate to, to pursue this, which is really unfortunate because it really did match up with everything that President Trump said he wanted to accomplish. And then obviously there was no really meaningful effort to, to introduce anything like this in the House. Uh, because, you know, when the House did try to pass, you know, immigration reform in the 115th Congress, which mm-hmm. um, I can kind of maybe have you discuss a little bit, uh, you know, the, the Securing America's Future Act from from Bob Goodlatte, you know, which you can discuss. But that, you know, that's it, it's one of these things where, you know, once again, there was just so there was, so, there was such a disconnect between, I think, what the president, President Trump wanted to get done and what the Senate Republicans wanted to get done. And this, and aside from some people that were very strong on the issue, like like Senator Perdue and Senator Cotton, there just wasn't an appetite to really go after this. Right. And I, I think as you hit the nail on the head, I mean, this was, in, at least in the 115th Congress, the Securing America's Future Act was something that we were closest to in terms of achieving real, true immigration reform. And, 
you know, unfortunately it died on the House floor and it was a GOP sponsored bill. But again, it was House Democrats united in opposition and stymied this effort. And also Speaker Ryan, who's Speaker of the House at the time, decided to craft his own package, which obviously created uh, its own problems. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that was the closest we saw. And that was in June of 2018. And uh, since then, there really hasn't been anything that close uh, in terms of achieving, you know, kind of bipartisan, true immigration reform. But sh uh, shifting away from kind of Congress and legislation, you know, I, I want to talk about or discuss with you some Trump administration in initiatives or proposals that, you know, were talked about in early 2016, perhaps in his 2016 campaign, and, you know, maybe even talked about throughout his entire term, but weren't really achieved as much as we would have liked. On top of my head, I think the number one thing that strikes out to me the most is the failure to build more border wall. The administration has built about 400 miles so far, which is, you know, an achievement in itself. That's a lot of good barrier and, uh, you know, definitely secures the southern border better. But I think we would have also liked to see more barrier built. And, you know, we're not, Ferris not calling for, you know, a 2,000 mile border wall that stretches from San Diego to, you know, the southern tip of Texas. But, you know, given this, given it was such a priority for the administration, especially in 2016, um, you know, you would have thought that there would be more funding and more wall built after four years. Now, granted, a lot of this um, effort was stymied by, um, you know, states and their lawsuits. You know, we can remember the uh, Sierra Club lawsuit, the ACLU. I think it was 17 states sued uh, the building or, or diverting uh, funds to the border wall. So, you know, this isn't entirely his fault. He had a lot of opposition from a gridlock Congress to even, you know, activist judges rolling from the bench as well. I mean, it was really, really hard to build just 400 miles. But, you know, that's what I think I would have liked to see more that it was touted so much during the 2016 campaign. And we're still, we're seeing progress, but not as much as we would like. But let me ask you, you know, is there something that, that pops off of your head immediately in terms of something that was talked about frequently, but not really... I guess, achieve as much as we would have liked to see it be. Yeah, I, th I think you nailed the, the big one, which was, you know, he promised that we were going to build a wall and that Mexico was going to pay for it. But obviously, Mexico has not paid for the wall. U.S. taxpayers are paying for it and they're paying for it in such a bizarre way because it's, you know, money that was allocated to the Defense Department that has now been diverted. So it's it, and it is just sad because they're, you know, it's his number one promise. And, mm -hmm. you know, the House Republicans and in many ways, the Senate Republicans that kind of rode his coattails to victory in the 2016 general election, you know, pretty much just refused to do anything about it. They, they really didn't help him out in the face of enormous opposition from from House Democrats, from Senate Democrats, from the courts. Uh, from the out, you know, from the previous administration, like there, there, from the media, there were so many people opposed to this, and yet it was his his signature promise, and you know the congressional Republicans didn't really fight for it. Um, so I th again, I'm just echoing everything that you you know so eloquently said that that's I think the number one thing in most people's minds. But you know there are some other things that he promised on the campaign trail too. Uh, he promised that he was going to rescind DACA, which was a, a what I think many people see as a truly unconstitutional use of executive authority. And, uh, you know, obviously there was a, a loss, you know, he did kind of try to rescind it, but it really, it was kind of a, a half step to rescinding it because he only did it 
at first to kind of goad the Democrats into coming to the table with him to discuss moving legislation. And that's what you had discussed earlier uh, with Bob Goodlatte's bill in the House was th- those were all bills designed to give some sort of status to those, you know, 670,000 DACA recipients while also either, you know, building the wall, reforming asylum, E-Verify, you know, things that we've always asked for. And like you said, you know, those negotiations collapsed because we had a great bill from Representative Goodlatte. And then out of nowhere, Paul Ryan decided that he wanted to split the caucus by introducing two Republican bills instead of just one, which was just completely asinine. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll leave that alone. Um, at the end of the day, President <laughs> Trump, did, you know, failed to rescind DACA because he did rescind it. And then uh, because his administration rushed the process so much by failing to abide by the administration administrative procedure act it wound up in the supreme court and they lost 5 to 4 only be, not because because the supreme court did not say that daca is constitutional in fact they actually in the way that the majority opinion is written it almost looks like it's unconstitutional uh or at least that the president had the right to rescind the program because it was just a memo from his predecessor. But pretty much what they argued is that the administration did it, you know, they rushed it. They didn't do it properly. They didn't do it by following the Administrative Procedure Act and and they got it thrown out. So DACA is still around. DACA is, there are still, you know, hundreds of thousands of people with DACA status. And uh, Joe Biden has already promised that he's going to strengthen DACA and that he actually wants to open it back up, which is something that, to their to the Trump administration's credit, they did close new admissions to the DACA program. Mm-hmm. So the only people that have it are the people that had it when President Trump decided to end it. Uh, but but Joe Biden would reopen it so that there's now conceivably you know thousands of more people that could benefit from this. Um, and then who knows? You know he you know he may try to pursue another program similar to DACA. Maybe we'll see uh, Deferred Action for Parents of Americans, DAPA, which another version of that, which the courts did strike down. But, you know, now that they've seen how the court ruled, they can, you know, kind of tinker with that and maybe introduce a new a new amnesty program similar to that. Right. And also, you know, I, I think it's important to realize that even though SCOTUS said, well, you know, the Trump administration did not properly abide by the APA, in a way, the Trump administration set the, in my mind at least, set the, the pathway for future administrations to learn the, the, I guess, the more formal process to rescind DACA. So th- there's a pathway set. They know, I guess, how to better follow the APA should they try to rescind it again or a future Republican administration rescind it again uh, in, the, in the future. You know, another thing I, w- I want to talk about too is, uh, and this is kind of a, a smaller topic, but you know, the Trump administration, they prioritized these worksite enforcement and removal operations all throughout the country, all throughout, you know, the four year uh, term. And, you know, I think we talked about this in a previous podcast episode, but, you know, one of the, the most prominent operations was the Mississippi ICE uh, enforcement and removal operations that occurred in 2019, where, you know, more than 700 people were arrested at these food processing plants. And, you know, it was great to see that the administration was finally kind of encouraging and implementing these 
operations and or th- these enforcement and removal operations. But these employers of these facilities weren't really being prosecuted still under the administration. In one study, for instance, uh, they calculated that between 2018 and 2019, only 11 American employers were prosecuted uh, for knowingly hiring illegal aliens at their companies. And so I think that was one area that we we would have liked to see an improvement on under the administration. You know, it's it's good that we're seeing more of the operations occurring, but in terms of prosecuting the employers, I think that was still somewhat not met as much as we would have liked to see it met. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that also goes hand in hand with we never saw any kind of real effort to push through mandatory E-Verify, either through legislation or through executive orders, executive rulemakings. And I mean, that it, it goes back to the idea that obviously kind of the flashy thing that most people think of when they think of illegal immigration are the illegal immigrants themselves, right? But, you know, really they're coming here for jobs. And the easiest way to, to reduce illegal immigration is to reduce the, is to really turn off the jobs magnet. And so right. there was, yeah, towards the end, like you said, there, there was somewhat of an uptick in worksite enforcement. Uh, but it's, it's nowhere near where it needs to be to, to turn that magnet off. And we still don't have mandatory e-verify, which is completely free. It is easy for employers to use. Uh, and it's, it, it would be the number one tool and really the, the least kind of imposing on businesses and on the government really to, to, to reduce illegal immigration. So really, you know, that was not pursued whatsoever. And like you said, worksite enforcement was really only kind of pursued at the very end. Right. Kind of tying this all together. I also want to highlight the change in tone and change in focus on the immigration issue at the beginning of his presidency of, of the Trump administration towards the end 2020, just, you know, right now, you know, 2016, as, as we talked about when he was on that campaign, President Trump talked about so many immigration related items, whether it was the, the build that wall kind of signature promise, the travel bans, even talking about deporting all illegal aliens in the country. I mean, it, it really, in, in many polls highlight this, but it really motivated voters to come out and vote for him in 2016. And then, you know, we shift four years later to 2020 and the first two nationally televised debates don't even have any content or any remarks about immigration. You know, in the first one, President Trump said nothing about immigration. Uh, then in, in the first vice presidential debate, uh, Vice President Mike Pence said nothing. And, you know, you look at their digital strategy and their campaign speeches in the last six months or so, again, almost like they're completely omitting the subject. And so, you know, was this because of COVID? Perhaps was this because maybe big business interest groups infiltrated the White House, had influence, maybe, but it was just so surprising to see the shift, you know, in, in this administration and, and with the campaign, when this was a signature promise in 2016, and then here comes 2020, it's still a very hot issue, and it's not really touched on that much. So what are your thoughts on that? You know, what happened? And I don't want to speculate here, but I think it's interesting to assess, could this have impacted perhaps why he lost, was maybe not touching on on, on the issue. Yeah, I, I really do find it surprising that he didn't touch on this, especially at the end of the campaign when the polls were so close. And especially in some of those, you know, Midwest states, those Rust Belt states that have have really been hit hard by illegal immigration and by outsourcing jobs and, and things of that nature. You know, that that was a message that I think really spoke to them in 2016. And to not really 
hit on that at all in the campaign was really disappointing. But um, my personal opinion is I think if you go back to the family separation, the zero tolerance crisis, that the media really spun that so hard. And it was it was looked at by and I think, you know, polling showed this at the time, the, the majority of the American people did not like the handling of of that crisis and the way that it was rolled out, the way that it was presented to them through the media, uh, the way that White House staff talked about it. And so even though, you know, I, I think some of us can say that parts of that policy were were grounded in law and were needed, I, I think the backlash that it received in the public almost lit a light bulb in the campaign staff and said, wow, maybe this is not a top, a popular topic to talk about anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, and you can kind of see that where even before the pandemic, before the economic downturn, you know, the Trump campaign had said the, really the only thing they were going to campaign on was the economy because it was, it was red hot, you know, unemployment was so low. And, and it really looked like at the time that he didn't need to talk about anything else. Because he'd be able to just say to voters, "Look at how good the you know look at how good the economy is. There's really no reason to vote against me, other than I can be bombastic sometimes." But and I, I think that all it all comes back to I think his advisors saw the public reaction to the zero tolerance policy and and took that as a sign to not discuss it in the campaign, which I think was a a again. A huge mistake because I think that you can you can talk positively about making changes to the immigration system without defending separating kids or you know all of the things that the media. I don't think that I think that the president could have avoided stepping into that trap, but unfortunately, I think his campaign didn't think that he'd be able to. Spot on, Preston. Well, that appears to be all the time that we have today. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed today's episode and perhaps learned something new about the Trump administration's impact on immigration in this country. You know, there is a lot done between 2016 and 2020. Um, as a reminder, we'll be releasing a new episode every other Monday. Our episodes are available on most platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. You can also visit our website, fairus.org, and our Twitter, at Fair Immigration, to access episodes. So please spread the word, and we hope that each and every one of you are continuing to stay safe and sound during these trying times. Until next time, this has been Understanding Immigration presented by FAIR.